we've been walking through the, the major prophets of the Old Testament. Usually in mainline churches, you kind of get them piecemeal through the lectionary, the way it works out. And so we decided you're going to get a little bit of all of them throughout the course of this summer. So we're down to the last two. This week is Daniel, and then last week is Isaiah, which is often referred to as the fifth gospel because it's referenced so much in the New Testament. So I encourage you to come back next week and hear about sort of the Mac Daddy of major prophets, the prophet Isaiah. This week we go to Daniel. Daniel is a bit of a mixed bag, and we're likely about to hear scripture from him that you have not heard before. I invite you to pull out your bulletin and look at the cover photo and hear the word of the Lord. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head, visions in, in his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being. And a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this, as I watched, another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in dreadful visions by, or I saw visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces, stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them to make room for it. Three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn and a mouth speaking arrogantly. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And I watched them because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horns were speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me, and the visions of my head terrified me. I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all this. 
So he said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy One, terrible and mystifying are some of the words of your scripture. Help us to see it, to understand it, to live our lives in accordance with your will. In Christ's name, amen. When you think of the name Daniel, who do you think of? Your buddy at work? Your favorite James Bond? Daniel Craig, very good. Your favorite Harry Potter star, Daniel Radcliffe. Your favorite portrayal of Abraham Lincoln, Daniel Day-Lewis. I thought that one would be a little harder. A certain feline in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood who's currently teaching your daughter how to potty train, Daniel Tiger. I knew I'd get a little bit from the front here. <laughs> Daniel Tiger is currently my favorite. It's funny, the first three most popular on one of these websites, the most popular Daniels are all British, and then you get some Americans trailing behind. I don't know what that's about. But the Daniel Tiger moniker to me is particularly interesting given the history of this prophet Daniel and the stories that we tend to know best about him. If you don't know the stories, it goes like this. Daniel and tens of thousands of other Jews were exiled by the mighty empire of Babylon, and they're forced to live in and near the capital city of Babylon. And they find themselves constantly without the stories of Daniel in these predicaments. The predicament is the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has something that he wants or needs, but because of their Jewish faith, their faith in God, they're unable to give him. Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue, and Daniel won't bow to it, so he's going to throw Daniel in with the lions. And you know that because of the faithfulness of Daniel in the story, God protects him and keeps him alive. You've got his buddies Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego who refuse to follow the decrees of Nebuchadnezzar and want to be faithful to God. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, but God protects them too because of their faithfulness to Yahweh. So there's some really interesting stories in the first six chapters of Daniel. They're the ones we tend to hear in vacation Bible school or in our Sunday school class, and we say, yay, if we can just believe in God, we won't get killed by violence. But then there's the second half. The second half is straight up weird, as you just heard. The first six chapters, we believe, were written around the 300s B.C., so sort of a post-exilic reflection on the Jewish people's time living in Babylon. And then the next chunk, from 7 to 12, the next chapters, were probably written in and around the 160s. The date is really important because it looks like Daniel is making some kind of prophecy from living back in Babylon. It's likely written after that, right after the time where the prophet would know that all these things would happen and the symbols through the beasts that we'll talk about. So we're in the 160s BC and there's some major events going on in Israel. They're being occupied by the Seleucid Empire. And what does that mean? It means the story is apocalyptic. Let's get a word of the day in. Everybody say apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. 
Now, this isn't quite nuclear war, end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. This isn't, isn't quite Mel Gibson's Apocalypto. As a matter of fact, it's almost nothing like Mel Gibson's Apocalypto. Apocalypse in literature, and particularly ancient literature, tends to be a type of crisis literature that reveals a truth about the past. It may be a present tense thing, or maybe talking about the future and sort of guided language, like this story that makes it sound like Daniel knew what was going on 200 years before. And it's usually in very highly symbolic terms. Apocalyptic literature is a revelation that often comes in dreams or visions and usually needs to be interpreted with the help of some sort of messenger or an angel. And apocalyptic literature is usually intended to provide hope and encouragement for people in the midst of severe trials and tribulations. If any of you have heard of the book of Revelation, this may sound familiar. For any of you who have been bored by one of my sermons, probably my sermons, and you pull up your pew Bible and you're like, I'm going to check out that crazy book at the end of the Bible, Revelation, you kind of weird it out really fast because the first things you tend to see are these beasts and these creatures and these horses and their scrolls. And it doesn't seem to mean anything. It's hard to find the connection between all of it. Until you go back and do a little bit of the historical context to see what that would have meant to the people who received that message. If it comes to Revelation, the whole thing is about the battle of the martyred Christians versus the persecuting Roman Empire. It's mighty. It's massive. It's one of the strongest empires the world has ever known. And yet in Revelation, a slaughtered lamb, a lamb that is literally sliced open and bleeding, that slaughtered lamb wins the day. It's this incredibly countercultural message of how nonviolent resistance of the persecuted martyrs and Christians in that day would win over the violent weapons of the military-industrial Roman Empire. It's an incredible story when you know the context. Otherwise, it looks crazy. Daniel is the same. In Daniel, we have these four beasts, very strange pictures on the front of your bulletin. So if you want to look at them again, you can begin to see the symbolism. The first is the lion or the eagle, which is a vision, a blending of the most powerful land animal, the most powerful air animal, most powerful bird. At that time, it would have represented King Nebuchadnezzar's Neo-Babylonian empire that he forged together. And 200 years later, writing in hindsight, the writer can tell you that that one was destroyed. The bear represents the Median Empire, also gone. The leopard symbolizes the Persian Empire, destroyed. The terrible beast, the last one, represents the Seleucid Empire. Now that one is alive and yet gets conquered by this ancient one in the midst of the story. So authors date it in around the 160s because at that time, Israel has become occupied by the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus IV and Epiphanes, in addition to having an incredible name, comes in and sides with the Hellenistic Jews who want to make their culture look more like that of the, the occupying and, and pervading economic power of the time, the Greeks and the Romans. They say, let's just push aside our religion and do what's best for our economy. The more traditional Orthodox Jews want to maintain their religion, their traditions, their codes and their customs. In the midst of a sort of brewing civil distrife, Antiochus comes in 
desecrates the temple, forces everyone to remove all the images of Yahweh and only have images pertaining to Zeus. As you can imagine, that does not make the people of Israel very happy. They're put down. They are persecuted. They don't see a way out. Just like the Christians in the book of Revelation, they feel down and out. And then comes a prophecy from the prophet Daniel. Yes, these kings will come for a time, says the prophet, but eventually they will be destroyed. Eventually this will happen. Now the one horn we heard talking about speaking arrogantly is one of my favorite lines in the really strange chapter of Daniel. The speaking arrogantly would have been Antiochus. And so you see in that story too how that horn is taken care of, how God prevails. I love the title of Ancient One, this white robe dude that comes in with flames surrounding him. And as we talked about a few months ago, I don't really like metaphors for God as king because we become a little reliant on God as a male on a throne with a white beard. But if you're going to have one of those images, this is a pretty amazing one. You get flames flying out and taking care of these wild beasts. And you see the sort of sovereignty and the amazing power of a God who loves the persecuted people of Israel. So after the Ancient One comes one more figure. It says, I saw a human being coming with clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient One that was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. If you come 20 centuries later, people love this. Particularly more conservative Christians because they think this is Jesus, right? It kind of sounds like Jesus. And you can take it that way. At that point in time, the Israelites would have been looking for some ruler. Someone to step in, to step up, to remove any occupying powers. Whether it's the Seleucids or the Babylonians or the incoming Romans. To say, this is the kingdom of Israel, and its sovereignty shall be maintained. This is what the people of Israel are hoping for in the buildup of those several hundred years before the time of Jesus. That messianic hope. It's weird for us on this side of history, because we sort of have a messianic hope, and we sort of don't. Jesus came, Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel, and saved, and yet there's still... Things wrong with this world. Have you ever felt like you were living at the end of days? That God needed to come in to stir up the beasts of the water of our time and clean things up? Did you ever look at the Unite the Right white supremacist rally? Did you ever look at pain and suffering in the world? Did you ever look at the frustration that a 32-year-old woman dying too early and saying, why God? This isn't right. The world needs some uplifting. The world needs some change. The world needs an apocalypse. Only a fool would say there's more reason to be calm than to be scared, says theologian Donna Shaper. You have popular TV shows where people are beginning to question the world in the same way. I call it apocalyptic TV, but you may just probably call it TV. 
In one episode of The Sopranos, Tony Soprano is lamenting to his psychiatrist, Dr. Melfi. He says, lately I'm getting the feeling that I came in at the end, that the best is over. Dr. Melfi says to Tony, many Americans, I think, feel that way. I think about my father, Tony says. He never reached the heights like me, but in a lot of ways he had it better. He had his people. They had their standards. They had pride. Today, what do you got? Now, Tony used to have a lightness of step, just like now. And we have the beasts who churned up the waters in Tony's life. And so how does Tony respond to it all? What's his sort of end game phrase? What are you going to do? You may have your own phrase like that. It is what it is. Oh, well. Eh. Do you have something like that? It's how we cope with the craziness that's surrounding us. When you feel like you're in the midst of an apocalypse and you don't know where the end game is. In July of 1875, an apocalypse came to America. We usually can't imagine that these sort of things are happening to us. We think that our problems are less severe or less important. But in 1875, a swarm of locusts came upon America. The swarm was 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide that extended from Canada to Texas. North America was home to the Rocky Mountain locust, the most numerous species of locusts on the earth. At the time, people believed that it was the most common macroscopic creature of any kind to ever inhabit the planet. Swarms that occur once every 7 to 12 years, people were used to it, but they grew in size as droughts came along, and they were suffering a mighty drought at that time. Farmers east of the Rockies began to see a cloud approaching from the west. It was glinting around the edges when the locust wings caught the light of the sun. People said the locusts descended like a driving snow in winter. They covered everything in their path. They sounded like thunder or a train and blanketed the ground nearly a foot deep. Trees bent over at the weight of them. They ate nearly every living piece of vegetation in their path. They ate harnesses off of horses, bark off trees, curtains, clothing hung out in laundry lines. They chewed on the handles of farm tools, fence posts, railings. And some farmers tried to scare them away by running into the swarm and had their clothes eaten right off their bodies. Similar swarms occurred in following years, but in the 1880s when the rains returned, the swarms died down. And by 1902, they collected two live specimens, which they believe are two of the last of the species that is now extinct. You can go over and find them at the Smithsonian. We might not have our locusts in America, but we've got our beasts churning up from the sea. Your 9-11, your school shootings, global warming, wars that never cease, your 401ks, volatile levels, student loans, the unknown of what the world's going to be like for your children and your grandchildren. 
We go from the huge to the insignificant and back as our world turns and our seas churns. We hear the great beat of the monsters rising from the sea, the swarm of the locusts, the things said in psychiatrist offices. And we become afraid. So what can we do to assuage our fears once you've got a dose of the apocalyptic in you? When you feel like you're starting at the end of the world, like the premise to Mad Men or the premise to the newer Star Treks, or Breaking Bad. When everything starts with the end, where do we go from there? We can tell our dreams and our nightmares to friends who will help us make sense of them. That's part of what Daniel is doing, is speaking to this community, and together making sense of these visions of nonsense. We can try not to push the monsters back down in the sea, because as we know, we try to ignore them, just makes them more mad. We can choose to push them back down or we can work. We can pray and we can work for a world that will be less absurd, more just, more kingdom-like. We can stop being innocent or foolishly Pollyanna-ish. We can listen for the joy of the sea as we ask the monsters, why are you churning it up so? What would make you quiet again? And the challenge, my friends, today is for us to listen deeply for the revelation of God hidden within the apocalypse. Then to pray for quiet sleep and for the management skills of creation to keep the sea quiet and the monsters abated. To act as if you believe that God will bring a good morning, even if the night be loud. My friends, I don't know what darkness surrounds you, where you feel like you are at the end of things. Whether you feel like you're at the beginning or the end, may you know the God that saw the churning beasts, that heard the visions of Daniel, that saw the suffering of the Israelites, and hears our words of lament today, that God prevails. Daniel's God brought them out of exile. The slaughtered lamb of Revelation is winning the fight of nonviolent resistance against oppressive powers. God is with us this day. We choose love and look for God at the end of the world. May you see the end of the world. May you feel it. Know that God is right there with you. Thanks be to God and amen. <laughs>